All right, First Peter chapter 4. Why don't you turn there? We're continuing on. All right. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though, uh, though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Thank God for the reading of his word, and uh, let's pray. Father, we ask that Jesus, as our prophet, would speak the truth to us, reveal our need for salvation and your plan of salvation to us. We ask that Jesus, as our priest, would comfort those who are guilty or afflicted through his sacrifice for us. We ask that Jesus, as our King, would lead us, protect us, and discipline us according to our need. We ask this in His name. Amen. Well, I went home for vacation, spent a couple of days with my parents, and uh, as has been the case recently, my father mentioned, your cousin Rick would really appreciate a phone call. Okay, Dad. It's interesting to me. Um, Rick and I grew up together. Uh, he lived about an hour, not an hour, a mile away from my house. That's a huge difference now, isn't it? Um, <laughs> lived about a mile from my house. We went. We were to the same school our entire lives. Uh, we were often in the same class because we were approximately the same age. And uh, we did a lot of things together when we were young. As I was trying to process why Rick keeps wanting to get in contact with me since we haven't spoken since we graduated from high school. Um, and I thought, I think for him, those are the glory days. Those were the good days. Uh, Rick never got married. Rick has kind of had a hard time uh, with a, a variety of things I'm not going to go into at this point. And so I think he looks with fondness on those days when of our youth when we used to hang out together. Indeed, there was much fun that was there. I remember musically sitting in uh, his basement, uh, listening to Elvis records. And then later on, we would move to my basement, and the Beatles were what we were listening to. And eventually, he introduced me to Van Halen. So we can see how it changed over the course of time. Uh, 
the times in which uh, we were in the same bowling league on Saturday mornings and we would go and if his mom was driving, it was the AMC Javelin. Now there's probably a car that you haven't heard about in a long time. Whereas my mom at that point in time was driving this Plymouth Duster that had orange racing stripes and a fake air scoop on the front. I'm just trying to remember my mom driving that thing. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> So there were good times that we had. There were times watching uh, Holy Grail and speaking in British accents all the time, um, watching Young Frankenstein. So there was there were some fun times that we had together. But for me, I processed that time mainly in terms of days of regret, not glory. Because I remember the uh, various sins that we committed, the things that I wish I had never done. I'll give you one because there are too many. <laughs> one, one year, it was one of the years where there were too many snow days that were taken, so we had a makeup day, and that makeup day came on what was, nat- was normally a day off for a national holiday, and we had somehow talked our parents into giving us a day off from school, and we connected with some other guys, and we roamed around the neighborhoods, and one of the things we did was similar, reminds me a lot, of uh, Augustine when he and his friends stole the pears, as he says, for the hell of it. Just for the sake of stealing the pears. They didn't eat any of the pears, and so we destroyed someone else's bicycles merely for the hell of it. And I say all of this, in a sense, to mention the reality that Christ changes how we view sin, that Christ changes how we view our past. And so where my cousin looks upon it fondly, I don't look upon it quite as fondly. Our big idea this morning from the text is that Christ obeyed the Father's will so that we can resist the people's or the nation's will. Going in what might seem to be a strange direction, but hold on for a few moments. First off, we are called to arm yourself or arm ourselves with Christ's attitude to or toward sin and suffering. Peter here begins to use some of what Sinclair Ferguson calls gospel grammar. He moves from indicatives to imperatives. And if you are not up on your grammar, that means he goes from factual statements to commands. And this is a very important for us to remember this gospel grammar or we'll get things very wrong. We go, we go from what God has done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ and then the implications and commands. And so well, we hear these not from do this so that you may live, but do this because you live in Christ. Do you understand the gospel grammar? So if we put the commands first, we destroy Christianity, we destroy people's faith, we pervert what really is supposed to be going on in their lives spiritually. And so Peter here is following that gospel grammar, and we see because he says, therefore, then he issues the command. The therefore points back to the reality that Christ has suffered in the flesh for our sins. And so this command is rooted in the realities of the gospel. It's rooted in the facts that we have been delivered by the work of Christ. Now, there's some things that need to change. 
His suffering in the body is in fact ours if we are united to Him. We talked about that last week from Romans chapter 6, and I want to bring this back up again for a second. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And so Paul back there in Romans 6 is connecting our union with Christ because we have been united to Jesus. His death on the cross is our death on the cross for sin. Okay, And because sin has been done away with in our bodies through the death of Jesus, now we have been set free from our enslavement to sin. That's where Paul goes with it. And Peter is going in a very similar way here. You could say, because you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, because you have been united with Christ and have died with Christ, now therefore do these things. Gospel grammar. And the thing he calls them to do is arm yourselves also with the same attitude. This is, in many uses, a military kind of statement. Arm yourselves. It's recognized, as we saw earlier in this letter, that uh, the evil desires wage war against our souls. And so we need to remember, uh, that's part of what Peter's getting at here, we need to remember that we are at war in terms of sanctification. We're at war with sin which seeks to undo us. We need to arm ourselves in order to fight back. As the great Puritan John Owen said, be killing sin or it be killing you. And so you have to recognize the magnitude of the battle that goes on right here. And sanctification is war. And sanctification therefore requires a merciless mindset. Can you imagine a soldier choosing to go into battle without his rifle? Foolishness. Craziness. Law enforcement officers don't go onto their their uh, time on the streets without their gun. Although, Matt showed us a picture recently of someone who didn't have a clip in their handgun. Um, that was not a wise police officer. Even when they're off duty, what do they do? They carry handguns just in case they're needed. They arm themselves appropriately because they recognize the context in which they are in. And so you too, as a Christian, must arm yourselves, not with a handgun, not with a rifle, but with an attitude in your battle, not against flesh and bone, flesh and blood, but rather your battle against sin. And that attitude was the same as that which Jesus had. And in this case, Peter is pulling on that idea that it is better to die than it is to sin. Jesus was willing to suffer in the flesh rather than sin. That's a strange mindset. It's one that runs contrary to almost everything we have thought for many, most of our lives. 
And yet we see that this is consistent without, within the Scriptures. For instance, Romans 13, Paul uh, brings up this idea of union, but he also brings up the same kinds of sins, and he says this, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, or be united to Him, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Since we're united to Christ, we are to make no provision for for, uh, the flesh so that we don't gratify its desires. We don't give an inch is what Paul is saying there. Don't put yourselves in positions where you know your desires are going to be stirred up and cry out for satisfaction. We see this as well in Hebrews chapter 12 that we are uh, to recognize that sin so easily entangles and he notes the author does, that in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, but he reminds them that Jesus had. That Jesus had shed his blood for them. And there was still progress, so to speak, for them. But we have to recognize something that's very important as we look at this text. Though we may be born again and regenerate, though we may be justified, we are not yet glorified, and therefore we still experience very strong and sinful desires. And the best way I sort of think of this in my head is the, is the, uh, the movie version of Little Shop of Horrors, because I never saw the play. Uh, but Seymour, the plant, is crying out, Feed me! Feed me! Insatiable appetite for more. And the flesh has a similar insatiable appetite for more. Satisfy me. Satisfy me. Feed me. Give me what I want. And so the call to deny oneself, to fulfill that call and not fulfill our desires often feels like dying. Like you will die if you do not do what your flesh desires. And so for Peter, just like for Paul, your battle against sin essentially begins in the mind, one that is focused on Christ's work for you. And so, take up your arms against the enemy of your soul. Be done with sin precisely because Christ has suffered for sin for you. So secondly, okay, first, arm yourself with Christ's attitude. Secondly, live for the will of God and not the will of man. Now, Peter's original audience. Remember, these were mostly Gentiles who had been converted into Christianity. Most of them were adults from pagan religions, false religions. And so he reminds them, you've spent enough time doing these things. Okay, And he reminds them that they were now to live for the will of God, which is good, and not the will of those who were around them. And I 
struggle a little bit with uh, how this was translated. Um, let me make sure I'm in the right spot. So that you no longer, uh, for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Um, then for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So, that word want that is found there can also be translated will. There's two different terms that are used, one for the will of God and one for the wants or purpose or intentions or will of the Gentiles. Okay, The one with regard to God has to do more with the idea of God's commands, the will of God revealed objectively in the commands of God, whereas the wants or will of the nations has to do with their purposes. And so we find that the will of God, the commands of God, are in conflict with the desires of people, with the intentions or will of people, particularly sinful people. This is very similar to the conflict that we read about in Galatians 5, between the commands of God and the purpose or will of the Gentiles, between the Spirit and the flesh the works of the flesh, and the fruit of the Spirit. So we see this conflict that is there that emerges. But again, I want to remind you that Jesus obeyed God's commands on our behalf so that He would have a righteousness to give those who are united to Him in justification, that Jesus also suffered rather than live for the purposes of man. And so, as a result, we are accepted by the Father as righteous when we believe in Christ because of Christ's righteousness. That He removes the guilt. That those things that I regret about my childhood, as uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 25, our call to worship, remember not the sins of my youth. He remembers not the sins of my youth, but He remembers instead the righteousness of Jesus. The only hope I have is that He remembers not my sins, but Christ's righteousness. And that's what He promises to do to all, or for all, who believe in His Son and what He has done. And so, because we know that we are loved by God through Jesus the Son, we then choose to submit to His will rather than with our clamoring desires. And so we live, so to speak, what Jesus says in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And the only reason we would do that is if we have a taste of the love of God in Jesus Christ. If we had tasted His mercy and His goodness. We read a little bit from Leviticus 18 this morning. Notice that. Okay, these, these were Gentiles who are now being called to live differently from all of their neighbors. The Jews, the Hebrews that uh, Leviticus 19, 18 was written to were people who had come out of Egypt and they're reminded by Moses, don't live like the people in Egypt. 
Don't live by their will. Don't live by their commands. And don't live like the Canaanites live where I'm going to send you. And so again, he's differentiating the lifestyle that his people are to live compared to that of the nations or Gentiles surrounding them. And if we look at uh, the rest of Leviticus 18, we'll see that unfortunately most of it has to deal with sexual sin, which is exactly uh, where a lot of what Peter gets to at this point makes you wonder if Peter had this passage in mind. And so he says that they, when they were still in the flesh, when they were still Gentiles, they engaged in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And that last sense, that last word there, or phrase, detestable idolatry, points to the fact that much of what precedes it was encouraged by their false worship and sometimes was a part of their false worship. And so these people, had men and women, had come out of a very debaucherous lifestyle, a lifestyle of excess and drunkenness, and they were called to forsake that lifestyle. Now, just as they lived in a culture that affirmed and encouraged those kinds of sins, we too now live in a culture that increasingly affirms and encourages those kinds of sins in the name of self-fulfillment. As if you haven't really lived until you've been debaucherous, debaucherous, lustful, drunken, and all the rest. As we think about these sins that Peter lays out, let us not think that these are about what I guess I'm calling unplanned sins. Peter doesn't have in mind the person who realizes after the fact they had one drink too many, and maybe they shouldn't drive. It's not the per, not the the couple that's dating and and one night some the things get a little out of hand. He's not talking about that. Those are sins. Yes. Need to be repented of, yes. But what he has in mind is the willful, persistent pursuit of these sins. The seeking of satisfaction through the performance of sins, the practicing of sin. And so instead, it's the person who goes to Mardi Gras for the express purpose of the drunkenness and the revelry. Of uh, uh, something that looks exactly like those car- the carousing would be. That's what carousing is. It's people who are all drunk, who are running around a city, causing all kinds of problems and looking for all of the pleasure they can possibly get. It's Mardi Gras. For some people, that's spring break. They're not taking a break from classes. They're, they're going to some resort somewhere, and their intention is to drink as much and have as much sex as they possibly can. That's not everyone who goes to spring break, but for many, that's what it is. What comes to mind is the movie I saw when I was a teenager, Animal House. Doga, doga, doga. Their express purpose was to get so drunk that anything might happen. That are those are pictures of what Peter is talking about. Okay. 
On the other hand, from the passage at the end of uh, 1 Peter 3, we remember that baptism represents in part our cleansing from idolatry and the gift of the Holy Spirit in, that, in order that we might obey the Father. You see, these people that Peter writes to are not the only ones who live this kind of lifestyle. Paul says the same thing to the Corinthians. And that is what some of you were, he says. A, a, a list that is similar. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then he goes on to say, Do you not know that your bodies, because of your union with Christ, are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Should I take the members of Christ as I go carousing, as I engage in drunkenness, as I give in to lusts? Of course, the answer would be no. No. But we see that Jesus, the Jesus who justifies, is the same Jesus who also sanctifies us as well. In other words, He imparts himself and therefore he imparts power to obey the will of God as opposed to obeying the will or course of men. Now what does this mean? Part of what this means is that because we are united to Christ, we have a love-hate or a attraction-revulsion relationship with sin. Because you're not glorified yet. While regeneration has affected every part of you, it is not perfect within you. And so, there's a part of you that still likes sin. Even though at the same time, you're sort of afraid of it and don't like it. While I don't want to touch snakes, there's a part of me that's fascinated by snakes. That's similar to our relationship with sin. We might be afraid of it and its consequences, and yet there's something about it that attracts us. And so we struggle. And statistically, many of us in this room have sexual struggles. Others of us have struggles with food and drink, just like the people there and uh, that Peter was writing to. And some of that has to do with our past. Some of it has to do with the fact that we forget who we are now in Jesus Christ. We experience spiritual amnesia. But before any of you say to me, I don't live that way, I will, I'll only just say this. It's not just about actions. It's also about the mind. What are we setting our minds upon? What are we thinking about? Or maybe another better term for it is fantasizing about. Many times Christians don't commit these sins, but they wish they could and think about them. We struggle too. Let's not deny it. Let's not pretend it doesn't happen, but let's deal with it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Most Christians tend to hide those struggles in a vault of shame because oftentimes they think they're the only one who's ever thought that or experienced that. But part of what God intends for us to do is for us to talk to someone about it. Not everyone. Not dangerous people. Uh, don't go to the town gossip or the church gossip and tell them about your sins, but find a trusted person who is gentle and compassionate that can listen to you and pray for you and encourage you and help you find your way out of the sin that so easily entangles. And so we see that Christ suffered for us so that we can now live for God's will instead of man's will. But this creates another problem. We are to trust in Christ to vindicate us when reviled. And my grammar somehow got messed up in there. I know better. The people around them were surprised when these converts to Christianity no longer joined them. They were no longer running with the pack. I experienced a, a smidge of that when I was when I was converted. It, it changed my relationship to alcohol, but it therefore necessarily changed my relationship to certain people, because that was the primary context in which I knew them. And so they were surprised when I no longer ran with the pack. They're surprised that these people no longer ran into reckless and wild living. The implication here is that these are activities that have no positive benefit. They're not good for anyone. And as a result, Peter says, they heap abuse on you. And so these relatively new Christians who were not running with the pack anymore were subject to reviling, blasphemy, if, if you look at the Greek. And so in a sense, um, while they're experiencing the insults of men, these men are actually ultimately blaspheming God. I remember... At the end of the stoned summer in middle school, my cousin still wanted to smoke pot. I decided I had better things to do with my time. By God's mercy, I was a goody two-shoes. <laughs> I can't remember all of the terms I was called, but that was really what caused the break in our relationship. It was rather convenient because from that point on, we never had a class with each other anymore. We were often different parts of school, of the building. But that was really it, that I was not cool and he was. Today, where people were called phobes. You're afraid of everything. So I guess I'm an adultery phobe or adulterer phobe. Uh, I'm a drunk phobe. I fear a lot of things, apparently. But that's just abuse meant to get you to go along and run with the pack. Because your refusal to join them implicitly condemns them by indicating that it is not normal and it is not right and it is not good. That it's wrong. 
And it's when we begin to suffer this abuse, if we do, we are to remember that Jesus suffered, as we saw at the end of chapter 3, He suffered under the will of man to help us when we suffer under that will too. By virtue of our union with Him, He strengthens and supports and nurtures us when we experience that heaping of abuse upon ourselves. Peter also wants them to remember something. He he wants them to remember that they will have to give account. They're being, they're going to be held accountable by a rightful authority, and that's really the, that phrase is often used with the idea of, you know, like, um, performance reviews. I was talking with someone who has had to do a lot of performance reviews in their role as a manager, and essentially, that's what this refers to. Bad performance. Um, they're gonna to have to give an account before Jesus for not just their actions with regard to sin, but also their actions with regard to saints, the ways they have heaped abuse upon them. This is not particular or or something that's peculiar and unique to Peter, but we see, for instance, Acts 10, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the appointed judge, appointed by the Father to fulfill this function. We see as well Matthew 25 and the parable of the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will uh, sit on His glorious throne. Before Him, He will will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so Jesus is our Savior, but Jesus is also a judge. And as judge, he will separate the righteous from the wicked. Now the people of Peter's day may think that if they die before Jesus returns, they can get away with it. But let's be reminded that he is the judge of the living and the dead. Death will not free you from the consequences of your sin. This is amazingly the third time that Peter has brought the judgment to bear upon things in this letter thus far. He uses that a lot because we're to think about it a lot. It's meant to be a comfort to us that God will set things right, things that are not yet set right. And so the gospel is to be preached in light of the coming judgment so that people will flee their sin and will flee the judgment and find refuge in Jesus Christ. But there were also many in in the original audience here who probably struggled with the fact, just as we see in in 1 Thessalonians, struggled with the fact that the Christians who died... Was this a sign that they were still under judgment? To which Peter would say no. It was not a sign that they were still under judgment. These Christians were judged by men. They were judged by the standards of men. But before God, they will be alive spiritually. They are justified and they will be vindicated and they will be glorified. 
And some of the commentators note how a lot of what happens in the first six verses here is very similar to what we see in the wisdom of Solomon. For instance, verse uh, chapter 3, verse 4 of the wisdom of Solomon. For though in the sight of men they were punished, their hope is full of immortality. It's a little glimpse of truth there. And so in a sense, you're, you're forced to reckon with the reality of which judgment matters. Is it the judgment of your peers because you do not participate in the sin that they participate in? Or is it God's judgment? Whose approval matters? Is it the approval of our peers or is it the approval of God through Jesus Christ? Whichever approval and judgment matters, that will determine whose will matters and how you live. So that's no small question to ask. So, coming to faith in Christ Jesus does not mean that your struggle with sin disappears. Instead, it means that actually you have now begun a battle to the death. Part of you wants to live for God's will as it's expressed in His commands, but part of you still entertains these sinful desires that can rise up in your heart and mind whether you act on them or not. And so we're called to arm ourselves and to go to war. We are to have the same mindset as as Jesus Himself that it is better to suffer even to death than it is to sin. Boy, you're not the only one who has a hard time hearing that. I have a hard time saying that. Because I'm not always there yet. I need to arm myself with that very same truth. It is not something that we conjure up, but it is something that we seek from Jesus Himself through our union with Him. This very same Jesus who suffered for us understands our suffering for righteousness and will ultimately vindicate His people when He judges the living and the dead. And so here Peter reminds us of these two key weapons in our fight against sin. Our union with Christ who suffered and the final judgment. And so I encourage you to use those weapons to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, not an easy sermon for me to preach, nor I'm sure easy for anyone to hear. It reminds us of how far we still have to go in some ways, but we thank you for the gospel provision that we're not meant to fight these things on our own resources, uh, but really in the armor that you provide, in the, the grace and the truth that you have given us in Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us who belong to you to hear these words as good encouragements, not as a harsh sort of talking down to. Help us to hear the great provision of Jesus 
for sinners such as ourselves. And Father, only the Holy Spirit can produce that. And so may the Spirit be at work doing that those very things. Helping us to understand the gospel grammar. Helping us to understand the, the call to holiness in light of our election in Jesus Christ. So that we are people who rejoice in that provision and cry out for that provision. Father, our eyes are not to be on our sin, our eyes are not to be on ourselves, but our eyes are to be on Jesus. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.